We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. And away we go, episode 196 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, November 29th, 2021. Thanksgiving weekend over. We now have arrived at a day on which the Washington football team will confront perhaps its most prominent nemesis, a Monday night football game at FedEx Field. Yes, few things have doomed the team currently known as the Washington football team more over the last 25 years than the Monday night home game. Monday night football games at FedEx Field have been nightmares for Washington for decades. Heck, Monday night football in general has been a problem for Washington. Will the Monday night ineptitude continue on this Monday night or are we going to get an extreme rarity, a Washington win on a Monday night. Hello and welcome to a special Washington football team pregame show installment of the Al Galdi podcast. This is the show that you want to listen to in order to be fully prepared and equipped for the four and six Washington football team's game against the three and seven Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. This is a big game for Washington for multiple reasons, including this, a Washington win will vault Washington into the third and final wildcard spot in the NFC. Yes, it is true for all of Washington's problems and difficulties this season, and there have been many problems and difficulties this season. Washington can exit this game on Monday Night Football in the number seven spot in the NFC. It's almost eerie how things are falling into place for Washington despite the two and six start. But of course, Washington has to hold up its end of the bargain 
and win. Uh, it has been a very long time since Washington won on Monday Night Football. The last two wins for Washington on Monday Night Football are the 17-16 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in December 2012 and the 2017 overtime win at the Dallas Cowboys in October 2014. Yes, the Colt-McCoy game more than seven years ago was the last time that Washington won on Monday Night Football. Speaking of Colt, he's actually going to come up again later in this show, a show that next segment will have for you the very latest on two potential big returns for Washington on Monday night, those of Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas. Yes, it's quite possible that both players will be back for Washington. We had a major reveal regarding Curtis Samuel on Saturday. I'll get into where we're at with him and Logan. I'll take you through the key things that Ron Rivera had to say during his post-practice press conference on Saturday and that Scott Turner had to say at his post-practice press conference on Friday, including Scott on Taylor Heineke as there's a lot going on with Washington's offense. Two key offensive linemen are out for Monday night. Adam Humphreys could be out for Monday night, but it does appear as if both Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas will be back. Very good news. Uh, also, I'll talk Washington defense. Will this game against the Seahawks be a third consecutive good game for Washington's defense? We'll go through the best of what Jack Del Rio had to say at his post-practice press conference on Friday, and I will present to you my rhyming keys for a Washington win over Seattle, and I'll give you a prediction for the game. Also on the show, the rest of your DC Sports Weekend. How about the weekends for the Capitals and the Wizards? Excellent weekends. Uh, each team with two big wins. The Capitals are tied atop the NHL standings as we speak, my friends, despite having dealt with a truckload of absences this season. What a job the Caps have done. What a job the Wizards have done. I tell you, Ted Leonsis, steady Teddy, must be loving life right now. His top two teams are doing quite well. I will talk about those two teams at length. Uh, we, of course, will get into the college football Saturday for Maryland, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Navy, including the Terrapins concluding their regular season with a blowout win at Rutgers to get to six wins and bowl eligibility for the first time since the 2016 season. Nice job by the Turtles. And the Hokies winning at the Cavaliers. The reality that is Virginia Tech owning Virginia in football has perhaps never been highlighted more than that reality was highlighted by what happened in Charlottesville on Saturday. The Hokies had no business beating the Wahoos this season, and yet the Hokies did beat the Hoos again. Uh, and I'll talk college basketball late in the show. Losses for Maryland and Georgetown to wrap up their Thanksgiving weekend tournament runs. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast. If you don't already do that, subscribing costs you nothing and make sure that you never, ever miss an episode. And especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, which is the case for most of you, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. Uh, those things help out the podcast a lot. And I do appreciate it you doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Darren on the Washington football team. Writes, Darren, I realized on Thursday after the Cowboys lost to the Raiders that Washington controls its own destiny. If Washington wins out, parentheses, this is not a prediction, 
Washington would be 11-6 and and would possess the tiebreaker over Dallas. It's of interest only because things looked so hopeless when Washington was 2-6. and six. Uh, Yes, Darren, uh, things have broken quite nicely for Washington over these last few weeks. If you were watching the NFL on Sunday, as I was and as I know many of you were, uh, you picked up on this. Like, it's not just Washington having won two consecutive games. It's the Dallas Cowboys having lost two consecutive games. It's the Philadelphia Eagles losing on Sunday. It's the New Orleans Saints having lost four consecutive games. It's the Carolina Panthers losing on Sunday again, uh, as Cam Newton was horrendous, by the way. Uh, It's the Seahawks having lost two consecutive games. And the thing with Washington, too, is Washington's record in the NFC. The top two tiebreakers between teams from different divisions for wildcard spots are one, head-to-head results, and two, conference records. Washington being four and two in the NFC is huge. You know, the fact that four of Washington's six losses have been to AFC teams is significant. Four of Washington's six losses have been against AFC opponents, the Los Angeles Chargers, the Buffalo Bills, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Denver Broncos. You don't want to lose, but if you have to lose, you always rather lose to teams in the other conference. Email from Stanley on a major announcement by the Washington football team on Saturday. Uh, Washington on Saturday announced that the team will be honoring Sean Taylor with a physical memorial at FedEx Field during the 2022 season. Uh, No word regarding whether that memorial will be constructed in front of portable toilets. We'll have to wait on that. But right, Stanley, even though he was at least a part of what was a botched disaster with Sean Taylor's jersey retirement ceremony, big props to Jason Wright for creating the Sean Taylor Memorial Project. This is the kind of thing that lets fans know we're being heard and the team is trying to fix past mistakes and the team is not lying like Bruce Allen did with his iconic statement, the culture is actually damn good. Uh, Thank you for the email, Stanley. You know, I actually don't think that Bruce thought that he was lying when he said that the culture is actually damn good. I think to Bruce, that was the truth. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Bruce. Hello. (laughs) So yes, the Sean Taylor Memorial Project, uh, Washington on April 1st, 2022, uh, April 1st will be Sean's birthday, uh, will be launching the Sean Taylor Memorial Project and will be sharing ways that fans can get involved in the dedication ceremony and in the project. Again, Washington will be constructing a physical memorial to Sean Taylor at FedEx Field. We'll be unveiling that memorial at some point during the 2022 season. Look, obviously, this is Jason Wright's attempt to make up for the embarrassing debacle that was Washington honoring, and I put honoring in quotation marks, Sean prior to and during uh, this year's homecoming game, the loss to the Kansas City Chiefs at FedEx Field on October 17th. Uh, Washington, of course, did not announce that it was retiring Sean's number 21 at this game until the Thursday morning before the game, a mere three days before the game. And then the actual execution of that Sunday from a standpoint of honoring Sean was a mess, including, yes, the team staging a photo op for Sean Taylor's family outside of FedEx Field in front of a bunch of portable toilets. I kid you not. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and do cartwheels over Washington 
doing this Sean Taylor memorial because it's obviously a makeup for an epic screw-up that should have never happened. But the memorial is a nice gesture. I do think that Jason Wright is trying to make things right, no pun intended. And I can certainly respect Jason Wright trying to make things right. Uh, Well, the law firm of Paulson and Nace respects you and always has your back if you've been wrong. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. And I want to emphasize that word on this installment of the podcast to your family. And I want to actually publicly send out uh, the very best to the Nace family as founding partner Barry Nace unexpectedly passed away recently. Uh, just awful news. I communicated with the Naces over Thanksgiving weekend. We're all with them in this difficult time. But the legacy that Barry Nace leaves behind is very impressive. Paulson and Nace has done a lot of great work over the years and will continue to do great work. Uh, Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. As we like to say, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. There's no better law firm. Uh, Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers and has just tried two cases in D.C. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yes, you're obligated to nothing. Make the call and see what Paulson and Nace makes of your situation. See what Paulson and Nace can do for you. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. And rest in peace, Barry Nace. You will be missed. All right. Well, Monday night is the night. The 4-6 and six Washington football team will face the 3-7 and seven Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. 8-15 kickoff. This is Washington's first game on Monday Night Football since a 31-15 loss to the Chicago Bears at FedEx Field on September 23rd, 2019. Now, yes, Washington's 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers last December 7th happened on a Monday, but that was more like Monday evening football. Uh, That game had a start time of 5.05 p.m., and that was a rescheduled game. Uh, Next segment, I'll talk Washington defense. This segment, we talk Washington offense, and the big news from the weekend is that it appears as if Washington will have both Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas back on Monday night. Now, especially with Samuel, nothing's for sure until he's actually out there playing, but every indication is that both Samuel and Thomas will be back for this game against the Seahawks. Uh, Washington's final injury report for the game came out on Saturday. Curtis Samuel on that injury report was listed as being questionable for Monday night's game against the Seahawks. Uh, Curtis Samuel, as we have discussed uh, this regular season, has played in a total of just two games and has played on a total of just 30 offensive snaps. He's been inactive for each of the last five games. All of this, of course, due to the most nagging groin injury in the history of groin injuries. However, we finally have received some clarity 
on this groin injury. We on Saturday, the day on which it became apparent that Samuel was likely to be back on Monday night, had multiple reports that Samuel underwent core muscle surgery in June and had received a steroid and anti-inflammatory injection earlier this month. So off all of the talk of maybe Washington should just shut Samuel down for the season and have him undergo surgery. Well, it turns out that he already underwent surgery. It turns out that this groin injury has been much more than just, you know, a pulled groin or something like that. I don't think that that's surprising, you know, that this has been a core muscle injury that required surgery. This entire situation to me, and I'm sure to many of you, has felt like there was a lot more to it than we were being told. And we got validation of that on Saturday. As for Monday night, if Curtis Samuel plays, then what? Because remember what happened when he did play this season. So Curtis Samuel on October 3rd in Washington's win at the Atlanta Falcons made his Washington debut. He had four receptions for 19 yards on four targets and playing on 37% of Washington's offensive snaps. Three of Samuel's four receptions in the game were for first downs. But Scott Turner the following Thursday, October 7th, in a post-practice press conference, admitted A, that Samuel had been on a pitch count for this game, and B, that Washington had significantly exceeded that pitch count. Then came Washington's next game, the loss to the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field on October 10th. Samuel in that game had no receptions in being targeted just once, did have one carry for eight yards, but he played on just five of Washington's offensive snaps due to the problematic groin acting up. Ron Rivera has admitted that the exceeding of Samuel's pitch count in that win at the Falcons ended up doing Samuel some real harm. Here was Ron on Saturday in a post-practice press conference on Curtis Samuel potentially playing on Monday night. He'll go. go. There's going to be a pitch count. You know, and then that's it. We're going to stick to the pitch count. It's, It's already been determined. You know, last time we had to, we had to, you know, we had to come off of it and unfortunately it led to, to him missing more time. So, but there will be a pitch count. All right. So first of all, Ron right there made it sound like Curtis Samuel will be playing on Monday night. But Ron also made it clear that there will be a pitch count. And it sounds like Washington will be strictly adhering to the pitch count. What determines a pitch count? More from Ron on Saturday. Well, really, as we watch him through practice, you know, you, you, you try to add on every day a little bit more, a little bit more, and then you really just kind of take a look at his GPS numbers, see where, where those are, the recovery numbers, that type of stuff. We, we pay attention to that stuff. So you heard Ron mention GPS numbers. Uh, that's a reference to player tracking data, which has become huge in sports. Uh, player tracking data is big in baseball, is big in basketball, is big in hockey, and is big in football. The ability to track, you know, how fast players are moving, how many steps players are taking, and so much more. Really big deal. And that really is the next wave in analytics. We talk about analytics a lot on this podcast, but to me, sports science numbers and concepts, those things are the next frontier in the overall analytics movement in sports. So good for Washington for making use of the GPS numbers, as Ron said. So Curtis Samuel, Washington signed him as an unrestricted free agent this past March to a three-year, $34.5 million contract with $21.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. Uh, I was a fan of the signing for many reasons. Samuel is young. This season is just his age 25 season. Samuel is familiar with Washington's current coaching staff. Carolina Panthers took Samuel in the second round of the 2017 
NFL draft. So he was with Ron Rivera during Ron's time as Panthers head coach. Rod Samuel was with Ron in Carolina from 2017 to December 2019 when Ron got fired. As Panthers head coach, Samuel was with Washington offensive coordinator Scott Turner during his time as Panthers quarterbacks coach in the 2018 and 2019 seasons. Samuel was with Washington's senior offensive assistant Jim Hustler during his time as Panthers receivers coach in 2019. Samuel played collegiately at, right, Ohio State, was part of the Buckeyes' 2014 recruiting class and included Terry McLaurin. Samuel last regular season had a career best season, 77 receptions for 851 yards and three touchdowns on 97 targets over 15 games. And Samuel offers, yes, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Uh, Curtis Samuel over his four regular seasons with the Panthers, 2017 through 2020, 72 carries for 478 yards and five touchdowns, 6.64 yards per carry. Samuel, in fact, was a running back at Ohio State. But of course, Curtis Samuel has done very little so far in his time with Washington due to the groin injury. Rod Rivera on Saturday on how Curtis Samuel has handled this groin injury. Yeah. Very well. You know, um, he's went he went through an injury his rookie year. He breaks his ankle, and he does everything he's supposed to, and, and more. Uh, you know, to the point where he went out and bought a jugs machine so he'd have that at home and work to start working there. Um, I mean, he, his commitment to to, to to getting back on the football field. I, I never worried. I never questioned that because he does everything. Um, and, and maybe he does too much, you know, because he wants to get back on the field badly. All right. So Ron right there just alluded to something that, of course, increasingly is becoming a big deal in sports, uh, mental health. And not to turn this segment into a public service announcement, but we know that there is significant pressure on big time athletes to return from injury, especially highly paid big time athletes like Curtis Samuel. More from Ron on Saturday. That's something that's kind of, you know, come to play, um, you know, and, and it's it's the stress, it's it, it's the pressure, and, you know, it's different, you know, from when we played, we didn't have to, you know, I, I know we didn't have to worry back, you know, 30 years ago of social media and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's just, that just wasn't something we worried about, so people weren't constantly being judged. Today they are, and it's, it's it's difficult, it's tough, and and so that's one of the beauties of having Dr. Roberts around. You know, she has actually has a program for our guys um, that 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 we have placed on IR, um, and it's something that's been very helpful. At least I believe it has, and and you know, it, it, it's tremendous having that extra person here that that really is there to take care of their mental health. So you heard Ron in that cut right there mention a Dr. Roberts. Uh, Dr. Roberts is Dr. Barbara Roberts. The Washington football team this past June 1st announced the hiring of Dr. Barbara Roberts as the team's first full-time director of wellness and clinical services. She is a PhD in psychology. She became just the fourth full-time clinician with a PhD in psychology, working for an NFL franchise at the time of her hiring, and she's employed by Washington to help players with their mental health. Uh, Ron talked about the mental aspect of Curtis Samuel's recovery quite a bit on Saturday. Ron clearly is well aware of the criticism that Curtis Samuel has received. How about this from Ron on Saturday? As much as they don't want to hear it, 
they'll hear it. Somebody, somebody they know will read something or say something or hear something, and it'll get back to the player inevitably. And that's unfortunate. It's unfair. Nobody really knows. Nobody really understands what it's like, you know. And it, it takes me back to a saying that I've said before, and I've told you guys this before: Don't draw me a map unless you've been there. Unless you have been in my shoes, it's very difficult for people to tell you what it's like. Yes, it is. Look, I can only speak for myself, but what I have expressed regarding this Curtis Samuel situation is an aggravation that this groin injury would not go away and a curiosity over what exactly had happened with the groin. Because like I said, as time went on, it became pretty evident that there was more to the situation than we were being told. And now we know that he, in fact, underwent core muscle surgery back in June. But I have never like blamed Curtis Samuel for this situation. I certainly have never called him soft or anything like that. This ordeal is not his fault. Uh, This ordeal has been maddening, but this ordeal is not his fault. And I hope that Curtis Samuel kills it on Monday night. I hope that Curtis Samuel stays healthy for the rest of the season. I hope that Curtis Samuel ends up putting up big numbers over Washington's final seven regular season games. And maybe in some games beyond the regular season. Who knows? But Curtis Samuel on Monday night appears likely to have a chance to silence his critics, you know? Critics like former Carolina Panthers receiver Steve Smith Sr., right? Steve Smith Sr., uh, he went on 106.7 The Fan on November 18th and said that Washington overpaid for Samuel, said that Washington signed Samuel primarily because Scott Turner is comfortable with Samuel. So we'll see. But man, I hope Curtis Samuel is out there on Monday night. I hope he stays healthy. And I hope he is the player who we saw him be with the Panthers last season. As for Logan Thomas. So Logan, as of early Monday morning, was still on the reserve injured list, which he has been on since October 6th due to a hamstring injury that was suffered in that win at the Falcons in week four. But indications are that Logan will be coming off of injured reserve and play against the Seahawks on Monday night. Ron Rivera on Saturday on what would be Logan Thomas's pitch count for Monday night. It's not as uh, severe a pitch count, obviously, um, but it will be good to have him back out there. Yes, it will be, especially considering that Ricky Seals-Jones appears likely to miss a second consecutive game due to a hip injury that he dealt with in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10. Washington on Saturday's final injury report for this game against the Seahawks listed Ricky Seals-Jones as doubtful. Scott Turner did a post-practice press conference on Friday. Here was Scott on potentially having Logan Thomas back on Monday night. I mean, it's just Logan's a, a, a really good player, you know, and um, I mean, every everything, first, second down, third down, you know, down in the red zone. Uh, talked about like Hump, uh, Adam and how the quarterback had a good feel for him. Well, they got a great feel for Logan just because of the size, his size. I mean, it's an easy target to throw to. Um, you can really turn it loose. So it's it'd be a huge, huge bonus in every aspect of the game to, to get Logan back. Yeah, you think that Scott Turner is excited to potentially have Logan Thomas back on Monday night? Uh, Scott sounded quite enthused in that cut, and for good reason. You know, it's funny because Logan Thomas hasn't exactly put up monster numbers in his time playing for Washington this season, but he, of course, was great for Washington last season, and Washington needs all of the help that it can get in this attempt to make yet another late regular season run to the postseason. So Washington looks, and I stress that word, looks as if it'll have both Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas back from Monday night's game against the Seahawks. But Washington does look as if it'll remain without Ricky Seals-Jones. And Washington will be without two key offensive linemen, Samuel Cosme 
and Tyler Larson. Uh, Both of those guys on Saturday were ruled out from Monday night against the Seahawks. So Cosme and the win at the Carolina Panthers in Week 11 was back. He returned off having missed the previous four games due to an ankle injury that was suffered in that loss to the Saints at FedEx Field in Week 5. Although remember, Cosme was said to have been available for an emergency situation uh, for the win over the Bucs at FedEx Field in Week 10. But anyway, he had missed each of the previous four games. He comes back for this win at the Panthers. But Cosme, in the win at the Panthers, suffers a hip injury in the second quarter. That brought Cornelius Lucas into the game to play right tackle. Cosby ended up playing on just 42% of Washington's offensive snaps. Lucas played on 60% of Washington's offensive snaps and did really well. Uh, Cornelius Lucas registered the highest grade for the game for pro football focus by any Washington player at 88.2. Cornelius Lucas has been terrific for Washington for a second consecutive season. But Cosme is back to being out, and Tyler Larson now is out. Uh, Larson, in the win at the Panthers, suffered a knee injury in the second quarter, bringing Wes Schweitzer into the game to play center for Washington. And Schweitzer then dealt with a right ankle issue, bringing Keith Ismail into the game to play center for Washington. So Washington, in that win at the Panthers, was down to its third-string center for the game and fourth-string center for the season, because remember, Chase Roulier is on the reserve injured list due to him having suffered a fractured left fibula and potentially having suffered ligament damage to his left ankle in the loss at the Denver Broncos in week eight. So there's a lot to digest from an injury standpoint for Washington's offense in this game against the Seahawks on Monday night. There's also this, Adam Humphreys is questionable with a hip injury. Uh, he was a limited participant in Washington practices on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. As for the Seahawks defense, uh, it will be without a key corner in Trey Brown. He is out for Monday night, but the Seahawks will be getting back another key corner in DJ Reed. Uh, Reed did not play in the Seahawks last game, a 23-13 home loss to the Arizona Cardinals in week 11, and the Seahawks got shredded in that game by, yes, former Washington quarterback Colt McCoy, uh, even though the Cardinals were without their stud receiver, DeAndre Hopkins. Will Taylor Heineke on Monday night thrive against the Seahawks' pass defense as Colt McCoy did in Week 11? Well, Heineke, of course, is coming off back-to-back great games and what he did in Washington's win over the Bucks at FedEx Field and Washington's win at the Panthers. Scott Turner on Friday on Taylor Heineke in that win at the Panthers, having made multiple impressive tight window throws, like that early second quarter, second and five, six-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Cam Sims. Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about this earlier as the year's gone on, um, you know, in regards to maybe some of the, you know, interceptions or negative plays we had. As long as those balls, as long as that happen on time, then I'm fine with it. You know, like if you're if you're throwing those balls when you're supposed to and you're throwing it away from the defender where only our guy can make a play, then that's just part of playing an NFL quarterback. Everyone's not going to – we're not going to always get guys totally wide open. Or when you're playing man coverage, guys are going to have bodies near them. And, and those are the type of plays you need to make, but they need to be made when the guy's coming out of his break so that separation window is there and the defender's not making that ground back up. And I think that's the difference in these last couple of weeks is those passes have been made decisively and they've made made on time. Um, to where when the receiver is expecting it and when he's got maximum separation, even if it's a half yard, you know, I mean, that's that's open, you know, when you're talking about this league. Yeah, the NFL is essentially a tight window league like that is the league. 
tight windows. Uh, if you watch a lot of college football, even big-time college football, you see guys running wide open a lot. You don't see that nearly as much in the NFL. The concept of being open in the NFL is a relative thing. What may not seem like open to you is open. And the good quarterbacks understand what it means to be open. Uh, the good quarterbacks correctly identify who is open. And the good quarterbacks accurately throw passes to those who are open. And Taylor Heineke has done those things over Washington's last two games. Hopefully, he will continue to do those things on Monday night, especially considering that both Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas appear likely to be back. Up next, we shift our focus to Washington's defense for the Monday night matchup against the Seahawks, including could Monday night be a monster night for Jonathan Allen? I'll get to that and much more after this. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We continue the preparation mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally for the Washington football team's game against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. And let us talk Washington defense. Yes, Washington's top two edge rushers in Chase Young and Montez Sweat are on the reserve injured list. But Washington's defense, in terms of players currently on the 53-man roster, is quite healthy. Not a single Washington defensive player on the team's active roster has a designation on the final injury report for this game against the Seahawks. Uh, Shaka Tony will be back off having missed the win at the Carolina Panthers in Week 11 due to a concussion. He was the only real concern. Uh, Cole Holcomb has been dealing with a shoulder, but I don't know that anyone ever expected him to not play on Monday night. The Seahawks, on the other hand, will be without multiple key offensive players. Uh, the Seahawks starting left guard, Damian Lewis, is out. A key backup offensive lineman for the Seahawks, Jamarco Jones, is out. And running back Rashad Penny is out. 
Uh, those absences do not bode well for a Seahawks offense that has been struggling. The Seahawks have scored a total of 13 points over the team's last two games, both of which have been losses. But going back to the Seahawks starting left guard, Damian Lewis being out. Might that help to mean another big game for Jonathan Allen? You know, Monday Night Football is a showcase, right? National television, ESPN, Allen is having a great season, and as much attention as he has been receiving, it feels like his great season could be taken up a notch with a big performance on Monday Night Football. Jonathan Allen's overall grade for Pro Football Focus this season is 90.5, which is outstanding. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. Jonathan Allen through Week 11 was number 8 among all qualified defensive tackles in the NFL in ESPN's pass rush win rate metric at 14%. Number nine, by the way, was Deron Payne. But ESPN NFL analyst Lewis Riddick, who used to work for Washington, tweeted the following last Wednesday, quote, Washington football team DT Jonathan Allen deserves all of the spotlight he is about to receive on MNF this week from me. The young man is a legit beast. Some of the best tape I have seen this season, end quote. Washington defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio did a post-practice press conference on Friday. Here was Jack on Jonathan Allen. John's pretty consistent, you know, how he approaches things. Um, I think he has a greater understanding of what we're looking for from the position. And, um, you know, even he said the other day, sometimes they just come. Sometimes you win and and for whatever reason, you don't get a sack. Um, and sometimes you do. So, we just want him to keep it going. He's got good momentum. He's playing well. He's collapsing the pocket. He's creating problems for the offense. And uh, he's, he's, he's having a nice year. Yes, he is. Jonathan Allen has a team-high six sacks, a team-high 21 quarterback hits, and a team-high eight tackles for loss. He has been Washington's best defensive player this season. I don't even think that there's a conversation to be had regarding that topic. Uh, in terms of what concerns you, about the Seahawks offense. Well, obviously, the quarterback, Russell Wilson, uh, he's not having a great season, and he may not be fully recovered from what were called, quote, severe injuries, end quote, to the middle finger of his right hand, uh, which is his throwing hand, caused him to miss three consecutive games. But Wilson, through week 11, was number one in the NFL in yards per completion at 12.6. The Seahawks have two really good receivers in DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Metcalf through week 11 was tied for third in the NFL in receiving touchdowns with eight. Lockett is averaging 15.3 yards per catch this season. Jack Del Rio on Friday on DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Yeah, really good players. It'll be a challenge for us. Um, You know, Metcalf's huge, uh, physical, uh, can really run. And uh, and Lockett is, is really... Uh, Russell's favorite target. I mean, his eyes go to him uh, as he extends plays. Both those guys know how to go get open. Uh, So it's a challenge. They've got a good group. They run it well. They they throw it well. They've got they've got a veteran quarterback that's really really good, and they've got some real skill out there. So it'll be a challenge for us. Yes, it will be a big test for a Washington secondary that has been much better over the team's last two games, as seen via Washington's third down defense. Uh, Washington's third down defense, so much better during Washington's two-game winning streak as compared to Washington's third down defense during Washington's two and six start to the season. Uh, Washington, over its first eight games of the season, allowed opponents to go 65 of 115 
on third downs. 56.52%. That's atrocious. Uh, But Washington, over his last two games, has held the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Carolina Panthers to a combined 6 of 19 on third downs. Jack Del Rio on Friday on why Washington's third down defense has been so much better over the last two games. Well, it's it's, it's an emphasis uh, point. I think uh, I think Russian coverage has come together more consistently past several weeks, and um, we need that to continue. I mean, it's no different this week. It's important for us to be able to get off the field on third down once we get them there, and get them to more third and longs if if we can. Uh, will certainly help the cause, but the guys have been good. Russian coverage working together. Yes, they are. Uh, the Seahawks offense has been really bad on third downs this season. So this game on Monday night offers a good chance for a third consecutive good game for Washington's defense, at least from a third down standpoint. And speaking of the Seahawks offense having been really bad on third downs this season, we now get to that and much more with Rhyming Keys. All right, it is that time, the time to rhyme. It is time for Rhyming Keys, a rare Monday installment of Rhyming Keys, as I will rhyme the path to victory for the 4-6 and six Washington football team in its game against the 3-7 and seven Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football at 8-15. Now, these rhymes, they are not meant to be good. They are simply meant to make a few points. And in fact, I have a saying. For this segment, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. And so here we go, shall we? Rhyming keys for Washington, Seattle. How does Washington win this game? How does Washington get to five and six with a third consecutive victory? Let us rhyme the ways. Rhyming key number one. This is for Washington's defense. Prolong the struggles of Russell in this Monday night tussle. The Seahawks are a bad offensive team right now. The Seahawks have totaled just 13 points over the team's last two games. A 17-0 loss at the Green Bay Packers in Week 10 and a 23-13 home loss to the Arizona Cardinals in Week 11. Now, the Seahawks do have decent offensive rankings per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. The Seahawks through Week 11 were 12th in the NFL in passing offense and 13th in the NFL in rushing offense, but the Seahawks have been horrendous on third downs this season. The Seahawks through week 11 were 30th out of 32 NFL teams in third down efficiency at 32.4%. And a big part of that has been the play of the Seahawks franchise quarterback, Russell Wilson. Uh, He missed three consecutive games due to what were called, quote, severe injuries, end quote, to the middle finger of his right hand, which is his throwing hand. He has been back for two games now, and the results have not been good. Uh, Russell Wilson, over these two games, has no touchdown passes versus two interceptions, and he has completed just 34 of 66 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of 51.52. Not good. And then there's Washington's defense, which has been much better during this ongoing two-game winning streak, and nothing captures the improvement better than third downs. Washington, over its last two games, has held the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Carolina Panthers to a combined 6 of 19 on third downs. Now, that's a small sample size, yes, but Washington's defense does seem to be trending in an upward direction. Look, Russell Wilson is capable. We know that. 
And the Seahawks have two really good receivers in DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. But Washington's defense is playing better. And the Seahawks offense is in a rut. The timing of this matchup may be quite good from a Washington perspective. There's also this. Russell Wilson has been sacked at a very high rate this season, even by his standards. Uh, Russell Wilson's sack percentage for this season is 9.5. And so rhyming key number one for Washington's defense, prolong the struggles of Russell in this Monday night tussle. Rhyming key number two for Washington, Seattle. This is for Taylor Heineke. Have a great game that gives us all joy, like Rex Grossman and Colt McCoy. Huh? What? Let me explain. So do you happen to remember the last time that Washington played Seattle on Thanksgiving weekend? 2011. It was the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend. Washington won at Seattle 23-17. The victory snapped a six-game losing streak as Washington had gone from 3-1 and one to 3-7. and seven. Washington's starting quarterback was Rex Grossman. Sexy Rexy in that game went 26 of 35 for 314 yards, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. Now, the two picks were not good, but this was Rex, so of course he threw two picks, but 26 of 35 for 314 and two TDs is very good. Among those two touchdown passes was a fourth quarter, third and 19, 50-yard touchdown bomb to Anthony Armstrong. Rex was in effect in this game. That's what I want to see from Taylor Heineke on Monday night. Him be in effect. Heineke be in effect. Him properly commemorating the 10-year anniversary of Rex at the Seahawks. And yes, I say that with mostly sarcasm. But understand, this Seahawks defense is nothing special. The Seahawks through Week 11 were just 25th in the NFL and pass defense per DVOA. The Seahawks in that aforementioned home loss of the Cardinals in Week 11 allowed the Colt McCoy quarterbacked Cardinals to go 7-14 on third downs and allowed Colt to go 35-44 of for 328 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. And yes, the Seahawks in that game were without a key corner in DJ Reed, but the Cardinals had Colt as their quarterback, and the Cardinals were without their stud receiver, DeAndre Hopkins. This Seahawks defense can be thrown on. We are years removed now from the days of the Legion of Boom. This Seahawks defense can be had. Taylor Heineke was great in each of the last two games in facing a very good defense. First, the Bucks defense, then the Panthers defense. Well, Heineke on Monday night will not be facing a very good defense. And so as odd as it sounds, rhyming key number two, For Taylor Heineke, have a great game that gives us all joy, like Rex Grossman and Colt McCoy. And rhyming key number three for Washington, Seattle, this is for the entire Washington football team. The past isn't your fault, but the history is quite mean. And so improve the record to three and 17. There may be nothing more humiliating, more embarrassing, more painful about Washington in the Dan Snyder era than the team's atrocious performances on Monday night football, especially in Monday night home games. Here are the records. Washington all-time is 2-17 and 17 at FedEx Field on Monday night football. 
Washington is 2-16 and 16 on Monday Night Football since the start of the 2008 season. Washington is 4-21 and 21 on Monday Night Football since the start of the 2001 season. Pick whichever record bothers you the most. The one that bothers me the most is Washington being an unfathomable 2-17 and 17 all-time at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. Notable beatdowns of Washington at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. November 2008, a 23-6 loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. December 2009, a 45-12 loss to the New York Giants in what was Washington's first game with Bruce Allen as executive vice president slash general manager. November 2010, the Monday Night Massacre, a 59-28 loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. November 2013, a 27-6 loss to the San Francisco 49ers. September 2016, a season-opening 38-16 loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. September 2019, a 31-15 loss to the Chicago Bears. Now, there have been plenty of road losses for Washington on Monday Night Football, too. Uh, Take, for example, the 43-19 loss at the New Orleans Saints in October 2018. But the wonderful, lovable, oh-so-popular venue that is FedEx Field has been the ultimate house of horrors for Washington on Monday Night Football. Well, here we are now, once again, Washington having a Monday Night Football game at home, at FedEx Field. And look, the horrendous history for Washington in Monday Night Games at FedEx Field has nothing to do with the current Washington regime and nothing to do with the current Washington roster, but wouldn't it make quite the statement for Ron Rivera, for Don Ron and his crew to be victorious in their first Monday night game at FedEx Field? You want to talk about changing the culture? That's the kind of thing that for us as fans would be a sign that maybe just maybe things are changing, especially considering this. Russell Wilson all-time is 10-2 and two in regular season games on Monday Night Football. And so rhyming key number three for the entire Washington football team, the past isn't your fault, but the history is quite mean. And so improve the record to 3-17. and 17. All right, prediction time. Uh, the line for this game per win bet as a very early Monday morning is even. There is no result for this game that to me would be surprising. I still am not at a point at which I believe that this Washington team can be trusted, but I do really like what I've seen over the team's last two games. And while the Seahawks are more than capable, the Seahawks don't scare you. I know the wretched history of Washington in Monday night games at FedEx Field. Heck, I just went through that history. But yes, give me Washington. Washington wins 23-20. We move now to some non-Washington football team items, none bigger than the Capitals. An outstanding weekend for the Caps. Two wins against teams atop the NHL standings. Friday evening, a 4-3 win over the then NHL-leading Florida Panthers at Capital One Arena. Sunday afternoon, a 4-2 win at the then NHL-leading Carolina Hurricanes. As for a second consecutive Sunday afternoon, right, a Washington team won 
at a Carolina team. This time it was the Washington hockey team proving victorious on a Sunday afternoon. So the Caps and Hurricanes entered games on Sunday tied atop the NHL standings with the Florida Panthers and Toronto Maple Leafs at 31 points. The Caps, as we speak on this Monday, are tied with the Maple Leafs atop the NHL standings at 33 points. Yes, no team in the NHL has more points this season than the Caps have. And this is despite, as I've been talking about on this podcast, the Caps having been without so many key players. Like, you can't talk about the Caps this season and not begin with how many absences the Caps are dealing with slash have dealt with. Uh, Defenseman Justin Schultz on Sunday did not play for a second consecutive game due to an upper body injury. TJ Oshie on Sunday did not play for a fourth consecutive game due to a lower body injury, which was suffered in his return game from a 10-game absence that was caused by another lower body injury. Connor Sheary on Sunday did not play for a fourth consecutive game due to an upper body injury. Anthony Mantha is out indefinitely due to shoulder surgery. Nicholas Backstrom has yet to play this season. He has been out since the start of Capitals training camp due to ongoing rehabilitation on his hip. Now, the Caps on Sunday did get back Lars Eller. He returned from a six-game absence caused by him being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. But still, the Caps have been without so many guys this season, and yet the Caps are tied atop the NHL standings. And a big reason, of course, is the great eight, is Alex Ovechkin. He is having another excellent season. Heck, Ovi right now might be the leading contender for the Hart Trophy for NHL MVP, but Ovechkin had himself a great weekend. So Ovi in the win over the Panthers recorded a hat trick, the 28th regular season hat trick of his career. He had a power play goal and two even strength goals, a game high five shots on goal, and a game high tying seven shot attempts. He did all of this despite getting banged up in the first period. Ovi in blocking a shot took the puck just below his nose, ended up missing a few shifts, but he came back into the game and finished with a hat trick. Uh, Ovechkin moved into a tie with Marcel Dion and Bobby Hull for the six most regular season hat tricks in NHL history. Ovechkin at 36 years, 70 days, became the oldest player to score a hat trick for the Capitals. Uh, Peter Bondra previously held that distinction in registering a hat trick on November 29th, 2003 at 35 years, 295 days. And Ovechkin's power play goal, 250 into the second period in this game, moved him to within one regular season power play goal of tying Dave Anderchuk for the most regular season power play goals in NHL history. And then Ovechkin in the win at the Hurricanes had another goal, a second period even strength goal. He had a game high tying four shots on goal, a game high 13 shot attempts, and a team best Five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick of 55.17. The Caps with Ovechkin on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 16 shot attempts versus allowing 13 shot attempts. So as we speak on this Monday, Alex Ovechkin is number two in the NHL this season in points. He has 37 points, 19 goals, and 18 assists. And Ovechkin is number one in the NHL this season in five-on-five points at 24. A terrific weekend for Caps special teams. The Caps in the win over the Panthers went 1-3 on the power play, 3-3 on the penalty kill, and had a shorthanded goal, a shorty. Uh, Tom Wilson had a second period shorthanded goal and two assists. Uh, the Wilson shorty came 134 into the second period. Evgeny Kuznetsov in the middle of a line change for the Panthers sent a stretch pass 
from the Cavs' defensive zone just beneath the blue line to John Carlson deep in the neutral zone. And Carlson on a two-on-one with Wilson passed the puck to Wilson, who scored on a snapshot from the right circle. And then the Cavs' special teams were really good in the win at the Hurricanes. The Cavs went one of five on the power play, and the power play goal was a big goal. Defenseman Dmitry Orloff broke a two-all tie with a power play goal, 1705 into the third period. How about old Orly? Uh, Orly only has four goals this season, but three of the four goals have been game-winning goals. Uh, Orloff also had a primary assist in this game. Hurricanes committed three minor penalties in each of the final two periods, and the Caps' penalty kill was superb again. Caps went 3-3 three three on the penalty kill. You know, the Caps' penalty kill for a while this season it was not so good, but the Caps now, over their last 12 games, are 27 of 28 on the penalty kill. That's pretty good. And as the saying goes in hockey, there's no more important penalty killer on a hockey team than that team's goaltender. And right now, the Caps' number one goaltender is Ilya Samsonov. Uh, That has been made crystal clear via recent playing time. Uh, Samsonov certainly was not the Caps' number one goaltender to begin the season. Vitek Vanacek was the Caps' number one goaltender earlier this season. But Samsonov has risen to the status of a Caps number one goaltender at this point. And you need look no further than just who's starting these games. Samsonov started each of the Caps two games over the weekend. So two of your biggest games of the season, maybe your two biggest games of the season so far, it was Ilya Samsonov who was the Caps starting goaltender. He now has started five of the Caps last six games. Uh, That, my friends, is a number one goaltender. Uh, Samsonov in the win over the Panthers stopped 19 of the 22 shots on goal that he faced. He, per natural stat trick, faced just three high danger shots on goal, stopped two of them. Uh, per natural stat trick, stopped just six of the eight medium danger shots that he faced. So Samsonov and Florida's Sergei Bobrovsky through Thanksgiving were the only goaltenders in the NHL this season, each with at least eight starts and zero regulation losses. Bobrovsky in this game on Friday evening was the Panthers starting goaltender and had a very strange game. Uh, he got pulled for concussion protocol, then came back into the game, then was removed from the game again because the NHL apparently was not pleased with his initial passing of concussion protocol. But anyway, Samsonov got the win on Friday evening, and then Samsonov got the win on Sunday afternoon. Samsonov in the win at the Hurricanes is really good. He stopped 30 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Samsonov, per natural stat trick, stopped three of the four high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped 10 of the 11 medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and stopped all 15 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. The two goals that Samsonov gave up came in a third period in which the Caps got destroyed in the puck possession battle. Uh, Samsonov really got tested in that third period. Caps in the third period per natural stat trick had just four five-on-five shot attempts to the Hurricanes 19 and had just one high-danger five-on-five shot attempt to the Hurricanes 8. But the Caps held on and came away with the win. Head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Sunday on Ilya Samsonov. Yeah, listen, there were some they had some quality chances today. You know, whether whether it was whether it was to get them the lead or whether it was just to keep it at two nothing. Um there were some big saves out there that Sammy made today. So um, you know, we needed good goaltending coming in here. We knew we needed a really good team game. I thought we did that. I thought the goaltending was real good. And we find ourselves with you know, moving out of here with the two points. Yes, you do. Uh, Samsonov now this season is 9-0-1. He is the only goaltender in Caps history to earn at least one point in each of his first 10 decisions in a regular season. 
Some other notable individual standouts for the Caps from their oh-so-good weekend of getting Kuznetsov in the win over the Panthers. Had three assists, finished with a game-best plus-minus rating of plus three. Defenseman John Carlson in the win at the Hurricanes had a third-period even-strength empty net goal and two assists. So a three-point performance for Carlson. He is number one among all NHL defensemen in points this season with 22. And then there is Alexi Protis. So Alexi Protis is a six foot six forward. The Caps took him in the third round of the 2019 NHL draft. And because of all these injuries for the Caps, Alexi Protis, for each of the last three games, has served as the winger opposite of Alex Ovechkin on the Caps' top line. Uh, this is not how the Caps drew it up going into this season, having Alexi Protis as the winger opposite Ovi on the top line. And yet that has been the case for each of the last three games now. And Protis has been quite impressive. You know, this is another instance of a call-up from AHL affiliate Hershey delivering for the Caps this season as they deal with all of these injuries. Protis in the win over the Panthers had two assists. Protis in the win at the Hurricanes had a second period even strength goal and a game-high tying four shots on goal. Alexi Protis became the sixth different Capitals rookie this season to score his first career regular season goal, uh, joining Hendricks Lapierre, defenseman Martin Fehervari, Connor McMichael, Brett Leeson, and Garrett Pilon. All six players were drafted by the Caps. That's what you call organizational depth. That's what you call being properly prepared for an onslaught of injuries, the likes of which the Caps have had to deal with this season, and yet the Caps are thriving this season. Cannot say enough about how well the Caps are doing, given their circumstances. Next up for the Caps, they will be at the Florida Panthers, Tuesday night at 7. All right, well, time now to talk about the big four in college football in the region, Maryland, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Navy. We had week 13 of the college football season, what was the final full week of the regular season. This was rivalry week, and the idea that anything can happen in rivalry games got even more credibility on Saturday. I'll get to Virginia Tech's win at Virginia in a bit. But we begin with Maryland, which has gotten to six wins and is bowl eligible for the first time since the 2016 season, which was DJ Durkin's first season as Terps head coach. Terrapins concluded a 6-6 six and six regular season with a 40-16 win at Rutgers on Saturday afternoon. Great game for the Terps. Uh, this game was a battle of five and six teams, and the Terps in this game smashed a Rutgers team that had been terrible offensively this season. This was exactly what you wanted to see if you're a Terps fan. You know, this has been a confusing season for the Terps. They got off to the great 4-0 start. They then lost six of seven games, including getting demolished again by ranked Big Ten teams. But the Terps do end up getting to six wins and bowl eligibility for the first time in five seasons. Uh, there's a long way to go for Maryland football, but you can now say that this has been a step forward season. It sounds kind of odd, but this game at Rutgers in a lot of ways determined how we looked at this Maryland 2021 season. You lose this game and boy, what a disappointment the season ends up being off the four and no start. But Maryland won this game. And so now you can say, well, there are certainly quite a few nits to pick with the season, but six and six, Bowl eligibility, you're in a spot you haven't been in since 2016. That is improvement. Head coach Mike Loxley needed this win at Rutgers, and he got it. 
and in convincing fashion. Here was Loxley during his post-game press conference. Really proud, uh, obviously, of our team. Um, it's been a long season for us. Um, you know, we very rarely talk about injuries and we don't make excuses uh, for our team to come up, uh, put it together today. I think all three phases contributed in some form or fashion. It wasn't pretty, but it was enough. Um, really proud of the 25 seniors. I keep talking about those guys because I understand what they've endured. Um, they've done a great job of leadership. They've continued to practice to the standard that we set. Um, really happy for those guys. And again, as I said earlier, you know, also some of the guys that aren't here that played a major part in us building this thing. And as I told our team, you know, this is the end of our 21 season and the bowl uh, opportunity starts our 22 season, which for us, it's all about continuing to develop our program. And this, this opportunity gives us a chance to do that. And really, really proud of the guys, really, really proud of their effort. And I'm um, looking forward to uh, developing our team with these bowl, bowl, bowl opportunities that we'll have. Yeah, Terps will find out their bowl game on December 5th. As for this win at Rutgers, the Terps offense was outstanding, especially considering that Rutgers defensively actually had been pretty good this season. Rutgers, as of Thanksgiving, was number 36 in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN this season. But the Terps in this game scored 40 points. The Terps generated 575 total net yards of offense. The Terps averaged 7.7 yards per play. The Terps went 9 of 15 on third downs. And Terps quarterback, Talia Tungavailoa, was great. Uh, he went 21 of 30 for 312 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. Took just two sacks and had a second quarter first and goal, 10-yard shotgun read option, touchdown run. Take a listen to where we're now at with Talia this season. He has set a new single-season Maryland record for passing yards. So Talia is at 3,595 passing yards, surpassing Scott Milanovic's previous school record of 3,499 passing yards in the 1993 season. If you are a longtime Maryland fan, you remember the days of the run and shoot with Terps head coach Mark Duffner back in the 90s. Uh, Talia set a new single season Maryland record for 300-yard passing games with his seventh 300-yard passing game of the season. Talia added to his single season Maryland record for completions. Uh, Talia now has 308 completions this season. And Talia now has thrown at least one touchdown pass in each of 15 consecutive games. That is the longest such streak in the FBS. Talia Tungavailoa, like Maryland as a whole, has had an up and down season, but he ultimately has had one of the best seasons that any Maryland quarterback has ever had. I mean, Talia, to me, has had at least the best season for any Maryland quarterback since Danny O'Brien's 2010 season. And Talia has perhaps had the best season for any Maryland quarterback since Scott McBrien's 2002 and 2003 seasons. If you're a Maryland fan like me, if you went to Maryland like me, you know that the Terps have had a really hard time getting good quarterback play for decades. That's not an exaggeration. That has been the reality, well, Talia has had a nice season relative to what else has been going on at quarterback for Maryland for years now. A big game for Terps receiver Rakim Jarrett in this win at Rutgers. Seven receptions for 111 yards. Uh, the Terps running game was dominant in this win at Rutgers. Terps running back Tayon Flea Davis had 18 carries for 152 yards and two touchdowns. Terps true freshman running back Colby McDonald, 15 carries for 99 yards. Meantime... The Commonwealth Cup. Oh, wahoo What do you have to say for yourself now? Uh, I, on Friday's show episode, 
195 said that if Virginia didn't beat Virginia Tech this season, then the Cavaliers should just give up playing the Hokies. Uh, Well, I guess the Wahoos now have to quit the rivalry. What a debacle for Virginia on Saturday. Virginia and Virginia Tech each concluded a 6-6 regular season as the Hokies won at the Cavs 29-24. Yes, as much as it has felt like Virginia has had a much better season than Virginia Tech has had, each team has wound up with the exact same record this regular season. Each team is 6 and 6 overall. Each team is 4 and 4 in the ACC. This game was a disaster for Virginia, okay? Uh let's not understate what happened here. Virginia was playing at home. Virginia was playing against a Virginia Tech team that was playing under an interim head coach in JC Price that was playing with a quarterback controversy going on that had gone just 3 and 6 since a 2 and 0 start to the team's 2021 season, and yet the Cavaliers lost this game. And the loss was the Cavs' fourth consecutive loss. Yes, Virginia went from 6-2 and two to 6-6, six and six, and then there's this. Hokies fans stormed the field at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville after the game. Yes, Tech fans took over Scott Stadium after the game. This was a hostile takeover. This was an annexation. You know how Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea a few years ago? That's what Hokies fans did to Scott Stadium on Saturday. Uh, That was a bad look for Virginia. And so what happened on Saturday continues an undeniable reality. And this is a painful reality if you're a Virginia fan, but Virginia Tech owns Virginia in football. Uh, It's that simple. The Hokies own the Cavs In football, Virginia Tech continued its dominance of Virginia. The Hokies now have defeated the Hoos in 17 of the last 18 seasons. Yeah, 17 of the last 18 seasons. Virginia Tech is Virginia's daddy in football. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, Arnold, exactly. Uh, Also, Virginia Tech clinched bowl eligibility for a 28th time in 29 seasons. Uh, Virginia lost this game despite another good game for quarterback Brennan Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong in this game, 29 of 45 for 405 yards, a touchdown and an interception. He took two sacks. He had two touchdown runs. Uh, Armstrong's 405 passing yards, the most passing yards ever by a player in a Virginia, Virginia Tech game. Armstrong broke UVA's single season total offense record uh, Armstrong now this season has 4,705 yards of total offense. Previous single season school record for total offense was Bryce Perkins' 4,370 yards in the 2019 season. Uh, Armstrong in this loss for Virginia to Virginia Tech threw for at least 400 yards for the sixth time this season and threw for at least 300 yards for the 11th time in his career, both school records. So it's a shame. I mean, I don't blame Brendan Armstrong for this game. Virginia's offense in the second half wasn't very good. That's true. But a lot of that had to do with things beyond Brendan Armstrong. Uh, Virginia Tech quarterback Braxton Burmeister. How about him in this game? He had a great game. So Burmeister has not had a great season, but he ends up doing well in this game despite, remember, having been benched by Hokies interim head coach J.C. Price in favor of the Texas A&M transfer Connor Blumrick in Tech's previous game, that 38-26 loss 
at Miami the previous Saturday night, November 20th. Burmeister in this win at Virginia did complete just six of his 14 pass attempts and did take four sacks, but he threw for 141 yards and a touchdown on his 14 pass attempts. And he had 12 carries for 115 yards and That yardage total includes the yards lost on the four sacks. So even when factoring in the four sacks, Braxton Burmeister, 12 carries for a buck 15, 9.58 yards per carry. His touchdown pass was a thing of beauty. A first quarter, first and 10, 61 yard shotgun play action, touchdown bomb to Hokies receiver Tavion Robinson. And then Robinson returned the favor because Burmeister had a touchdown reception, a third quarter, third and goal, three-yard touchdown reception on a pass from Tavion Robinson on a Philly special trick play. If you remember the Philly special from the Eagles in their lone Super Bowl win, uh, that's the play that Tech employed there on that play that resulted in Tavion Robinson's touchdown pass to Braxton Burmeister. Also, Virginia Tech smashed Virginia on the ground. Uh, Virginia Tech outrushed Virginia 320-55. Hokies running back Raheem Blackshear, monster game, 18 carries for 169 yards and a touchdown, 9.39 yards per carry. Uh, I tell you, this game was maybe the ultimate indictment of Virginia's terrible defense this season. Uh, We have talked about this. Virginia does not have a good defense Uh, Boy, was that highlighted in this loss to Virginia Tech in Charlottesville. The Cavs through week 13 of this season are 109th in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. It's a shame. Virginia has this great offense this season with Armstrong, and the defense has just been terrible. I mean, the Virginia defense does not deserve this Virginia offense. And, you know, the Virginia offense isn't just Brennan Armstrong. The Cavs have some really good pass catchers. Heck, Virginia receiver Dontavian Wicks on Saturday surpassed Herman Moore's single-season school record for receiving yards of 1,190. That was a mark that was set back in the 1990 season. So this has been such a great year for Virginia offensively, but the defense has not been good and Virginia, again, ends up going from 6-2 and two to 6-6. Six and six. And Virginia Tech, for all of its problems this season, and man, the Hokies have had many problems this season, the Hokies do end up going 6-6 six and six in the regular season. So Maryland, Virginia, and Virginia Tech, each team finishes 6-6 six and six in the 2021 regular season. Navy's 2021 regular season rolls on. Uh, one game left. It is the big game, Navy versus Army at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey on Saturday afternoon, December 11th. And the midshipmen will be coming off a win. Uh, Navy improved to 3-8 and eight with a 38-14 win at Temple on Saturday afternoon in a game at Lincoln Financial Field. So Navy is making its way through the NFC East, apparently, as uh, Navy season goes on here. The midshipmen ended up routing a Temple team that really is bad. Uh, Temple entered this game having lost six consecutive games and having totaled just 45 points over those six games. Uh, The Mids' offense in this game was mixed, but the Mids did go 8-15 on third downs, did win the time of possession battle by 14 minutes, 22 seconds. Interesting situation for Navy at quarterback in this game. You know, Navy's offense has not been very good this season. The quarterback play has been a big part of that, and this game did kind of capture that. Navy head coach Ken Matalolo played two quarterbacks and starter Ty Lovatai and backup Xavier Arline. Uh, each player had one touchdown pass, 
versus no interceptions, but neither guy did much as a runner. Uh, Law the tie in the second quarter had a lost fumble. Our line later in the second quarter had a fumble that he recovered. But Navy did do enough to win by 24 points. Navy slot back Carlinos AC had 10 carries for 86 yards and a touchdown. And another Navy slot back, Chance Warren, had two touchdown receptions and two big first quarter punt returns, a 22-yard punt return and a 36-yard punt return. Good to see Navy win. Uh, The Mids' big rivalry game is next. And while Army has had a much better season than Navy has had, anything can happen in rivalry games. Uh, Just ask Virginia Tech and Virginia. All right, let's talk some Wizards. Uh, They on Monday night will conclude what could end up being a really good four-game road trip. Wizards on Monday night will play at the San Antonio Spurs at 8.30. Now, why a Wizards game is going head-to-head with a Washington football team Monday night game, I have no idea. Uh, This will be Washington's first Monday night game since September 2019. You would think that the NBA could have figured out a way for the Wizards not to be playing at the same time that the Washington football team is playing, but whatever. Uh, But the Wizards are coming off a terrific weekend. Friday night, a 101-99 win at the Oklahoma City Thunder. Saturday night, a 120-114 win at the Dallas Mavericks. You know, this four-game road trip did not start off well. Uh, Started off with that hideous 127-102 blowout loss at the lowly New Orleans Pelicans last Wednesday night. But the Wizards have been much better over their last two games. Friday night, uh, facing a Thunder team that came into the game just 6-12 on the season. The Wizards in the second half never trailed. Uh, They overcame a 10-point second quarter deficit with a 39-19 run that built a 10-point third quarter lead as the Wizards went from trailing 47-37 to leading 76-66. Now, the Wizards did blow an 8-point fourth quarter lead and allowed the game to be tied in a fourth quarter that they lost 31-25 But the Wizards held on. Uh, The Thunder's Shea Gilgis-Alexander missed a 28-foot desperation running three from just to the left of the top of the arc as time expired. And then on Saturday night, the Wizards authored a tremendous victory, playing the second game in a set of back-to-back road games, playing without three key players, and playing at a Mavericks team that came into the game 10-7 on the season and had not played since the previous Tuesday, November 23rd. The Wizards ended the game on a 29-17 fourth quarter run. You see, the Wizards on Saturday night not only remained without Rui Hachimura and Thomas Bryant. Uh, those guys have yet to play this season. Rui due to personal reasons. Bryant due to recovery from a partially torn left ACL that was suffered last January. But the Wizards on Saturday night also were without Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, he did not play due to right knee injury maintenance. Uh, remember, Dinwiddie suffered a partially torn right ACL last December 27th. Wizards have not been playing Dinwiddie in the second games of back-to-backs this season. So no Dinwiddie, no Rui, no Brian, and yet the Wizards won at the Mavericks on Saturday night off having won at the Thunder on Friday night. Uh, good defense for the Wizards in that win at the Thunder. Wiz held the Thunder to just 11-33 on threes, held the Thunder to just 27-61 on twos, held the Thunder to just 14 points in the third quarter. Uh, the Wizards in their win at the Mavericks had two very different halves defensively. Wizards in the first half had problems. Uh, allowed the Mavericks to score 69 points and go 22 at 31 on twos. Although the Wizards in the first half did hold the Mavs to 6 to 17 on threes. The Wiz in the second half, though, held the Mavericks to just 45 points and just 6 of 20 on twos and just 8 of 21 on threes. And the Wizards ultimately did an acceptable job on the great Luka Doncic 
in this game. Uh, held Luca to just three and nine on threes and got him to commit four turnovers. Now, Luca still got his, okay? I mean, he finished with 33 points, 10 assists, and four rebounds, but it's all relative with a guy like this. If you could at least hold him to a somewhat inefficient night, as the Wizards did, that's a win, and the Wizards uh, did, in fact, hold Luca to an at least somewhat inefficient evening. Uh, good shooting for the Wizards over the weekend. Wiz in their win at the Thunder, 10-29 on threes, 28-50 on twos, 15-15 on free throws. Wizards in their win at the Mavericks, 36-54 on twos. Wizards outscored the Mavs in the paint, 60-46. Uh, the Wizards in the second half of their win at the Mavs went 7-14 on threes, off in the first half having gone just 2-10 on threes. A few individuals to highlight. So what a weekend for Daniel Gafford. Gafford in the win at the Thunder in 26 minutes, 57 seconds as a starter, had a career high eight blocks. Yes, eight block shots for Gafford in the win at the Thunder. He finished with the most blocks by a Wizards slash Bullets player in a regular season game since JaVale McGee had 12 blocks in a game in March 2011, Gafford had three blocks in a third quarter that the Wizards won 2014. He also finished with seven points on three of five shooting and eight rebounds. And then Gafford in the win at the Mavericks in just 27 minutes, 26 seconds as a starter, 14 points on six of seven shooting, 10 rebounds, including four offensive boards, three assists versus no turnovers, and two blocks. Not bad. Two really good games for Daniel Gafford on back-to-back -back nights. Bradley Beal had a good weekend. Beal in the win at the Thunder did go just 2-7 of seven on threes, but 6-11 of 11 on twos finished with 20 points, 6 assists versus 3 turnovers, 4 rebounds, and a game-best plus-minus rating of plus 10 in 37 minutes, 12 seconds as a starter. And then Beal in the win at the Mavericks, 1-1 on threes, 9-13 on twos, and he finished with 26 points, 7 assists, versus three turnovers, five rebounds, two steals, and a game-best plus-minus rating of plus 15 in 37 minutes, 32 seconds as a starter. Beal is not putting up monster numbers this season, but he's not needing to, and he's willing to sacrifice his scoring for the greater good of the team, and Beal has been a part of some of this really good defense by the Wizards. I think it's really telling that Beal in each of these two wins over the weekend finished with the best plus-minus rating in the game. I think that says a lot about the job that Bradley Beal is doing this season. He's not shooting well on threes. You want to see him get better at that, and it's not like he has been lights out offensively this year, but he's doing other things, and he's a part of an overall Wizards operation that is so much better and so much more likable as compared to uh, Wizards operations in years past. Uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope was big in the win at the Thunder. Four of seven on threes, finished with 20 points, four rebounds, and two blocks in 27-24 as a starter. And then KCP in the win at the Mavericks, 0-1 on threes, five of eight on twos, 16.6 rebounds, and 30-56 as a starter. Kyle Kuzma was big in the win at the Mavericks. Three of six on threes, finished with 22 points, nine rebounds, and four assists versus four turnovers in 34-31 as a starter. Kuzma in a fourth quarter that the Wizards won 29-21, came up big, two of three on threes, 10 points and six rebounds in playing for all 12 minutes. Uh, Kuzma in the win at the Thunder, one of three on threes, four six on twos, 11 points, 10 rebounds, five assists versus four turnovers in 32-56 as a starter. And Howell Neto was key 
in the win at the Mavericks. You know, you get a sense of this where every night it's somebody different. You know, it's not always like the same one or two people coming through for the Wizards. Last season for the Wizards, it was basically Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook or bust. This season, it's like, well, some nights it's these guys, other nights it's those guys. And, you know, here you had, again, Haul Neto coming up big in the win at the Mavericks. So you had Spencer Dinwiddie out for this game. Neto ended up playing for 24 minutes, 17 seconds off the bench. He went two or three on threes, finished with 13 points, six assists versus one turnover and five rebounds. Uh, Neto in a third quarter that the Wizards won 30-24, went two or two on threes and scored 10 points in just six minutes, 54 seconds of playing time. Now, a negative for the Wizards does continue to be Davies Bertans. Uh, He has been back for three games now since missing 10 consecutive games due to a sprained left ankle. I get that it's going to take you some time to get going here, but you know what? Davies Bertans really has not gotten going this season, just like he had a hard time getting going last season of being re-signed to the five-year $80 million contract. Bertans in the win at the Mavericks in 14 minutes, 32 seconds off the bench, went 0-5 on threes and had a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 14. Davies Bertans over his three games since coming back is 1 of 16 on threes. Yes, 1 of 16. Not good. Uh, But otherwise, there's a lot to like with the Wizards. They were in a bit of a rut for a while there in losing four or five after the 10 and three start to the season. But the Wiz came through big time with two good wins over the weekend. And the Wizards now find themselves 13 and seven, 20 games into their regular season. All right, let's talk some college basketball before we call it a show. Both Maryland and Georgetown competed in Thanksgiving weekend tournaments. The Terrapins were in the Bahamas. The Hoyas were in California. And each team ended up losing its final game in the team's tournament. Maryland fell to 5-2 with a 63-55 loss to Louisville in the Bahamas on Saturday morning in the championship game of the Bahamar Hoops Bahamas Championship Tournament. Uh, Terrapins with less than seven minutes left in the second half, led by five points at 47-42, but then got outscored the rest of the game 21-8. The game started around 10 a.m. Eastern, and if you missed the game, truthfully, you didn't miss much. Uh, This game was hideous, man. Maryland and Louisville in this game set basketball back about 50 years. Uh, Maryland and Louisville went a combined 10 of 41 on threes. Maryland and Louisville went a combined 31 of 71 on twos. Maryland and Louisville combined for 42 player fouls. This was the kind of game that to me is why college basketball has lost a lot of steam in recent years. College basketball way too often is ugly. And I know that everyone doesn't love everything about the NBA, but NBA basketball is largely exciting. You see a lot of made threes. You see incredible athleticism. You see great comebacks. The high-octane offensive environment that has been present in the NBA for years now has not made its way nearly as much to college basketball, and college basketball has suffered. Uh, Now, we did have a great college basketball game on Friday night. Uh, Number five, Duke, knocking off number one, Gonzaga, 84-81 in Las Vegas. But a game like that is the exception, not the rule these days. Uh, The Terps were awful offensively in this game. Uh, Offense has been the consistent problem for the Terps 
under Mark Turgeon. And that theme has continued into this season, at least so far. Terps in this game went just 4 of 14 on threes, just 16 of 38 on twos. The Terps have been just terrible on threes so far this season. Terps through seven games are shooting 28.5% on threes. That's it, 28.5%, 43 of 151 on the season. Uh, Take Hakeem Hart. So he was great in Maryland's 86-80 win over Richmond in the Bahamas on Thanksgiving night. He, in that game, went 4-5 on threes, finished with 24 points, 4 steals, 3 assists versus no turnovers in 37 minutes as a starter. Hakeem Hart in this loss to Louisville in the Bahamas on Saturday morning, a mere 2 points in 33 minutes as a starter. But as bad as the Terps shooting was in this loss to Louisville in the Bahamas, nothing, and I mean nothing, was worse for the Terps than their rebounding. This was a special kind of bad. The Terps got demolished on the boards in ways that were unholy and impure. Uh, The Terps got out-rebounded by Louisville 51-25. Yeah, the Terps got more than doubled up by Louisville in terms of total rebounds. And the Terps finished with just two offensive rebounds to Louisville's 17. Yeah, Maryland had just two offensive rebounds to Louisville 17, and thus Maryland finished with a mere three second chance points to Louisville 16. The head coach, Mark Turgeon, during his virtual post-game press conference. Uh, You know, our whole game plan was to box them out and rebound, and we didn't do it. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had a team get beat that bad on the boards. Uh, A little bit better on the defensive boards in the second half. Um, but, uh, to me, that was a difference. And, you know, we can sit here and talk about how we can't score and can't make free throws, can't make layups. Um, but you know, you got to rebound better. And that's the key of the game. Yes, it was because the game was winnable, even with the Terps woeful shooting, but it sure felt like the rebounding did in the Terps. Uh, two Terps who stood out in particular regarding the rebounding. The Georgetown transfer, the 6'11", Nigerian Kudus Wahab, he had just four rebounds in 23 minutes as a starter. Uh, he also went just 3-9 from the field and scored just seven points. Another key big man for Maryland, 6'9", freshman Julian Reese, consensus four-star recruit from St. Francis Academy of Baltimore. He had just one rebound in 16 minutes off the bench. More from Turgeon. It was physical. We knew it. I told him, I said, this will be the most physical game until we play Michigan State. And um, we didn't handle it. Hopefully, by the time we play Michigan State, we'll handle it a little bit better. Uh, you know, but we got a couple months to get there. It's November 25th or 26th. And um, I don't like losing, but, you know, we're getting better. And speaking of the game being physical, Eric Ayala got banged up in this game. He twisted an ankle. Uh, should be fine, but he in 29 minutes as a starter went 1-3 of three on threes, 2-4 of four on twos, and just 2-5 of five on free throws. Finished with 9 points. Terps did hold Louisville to just 6-27 of 27 on threes and just 15-33 of 33 on twos. So the defense was there, but the offense and the rebounding were not. And ultimately, this was not a good performance for the Terps. Next up for Maryland, the Big Ten ACC Challenge. Terps will host Virginia Tech Wednesday night at 7:15, and then with Georgetown, it fell to two and three with a 77-74 loss to St. Joseph's in Anaheim, California, on Friday night in the Paycom Wooden Legacy Tournament. So the Hoyas went 0-2 in the tournament. They got smashed by San Diego State 73-56 
on Thanksgiving night. Hoyas in this loss to St. Joseph's did overcome a late first half 13-point deficit and a 9-point second half deficit to take the lead multiple times in the second half, but ultimately did not come through. Uh, each team was bad offensively in the first half, but very good offensively in the second half. Hoyas in the first half, 3 of 13 on three, 7 of 20 on two, scored just 26 points. But the Hoyas in the second half, 8 of 12 on threes, 9 of 17 on two, scored 48 points. So it was good to see Georgetown do as it did in the second half. And a big part of that was Caden Rice, the graduate transfer from the Citadel. Rice went 7 of 13 on threes in the game. He finished with 25 points and three rebounds in 29 minutes as a starter. Rice in the second half went 5 of 6 on threes and scored 19 points. I tell you, he's not on in every game, but when he's on, he's quite on. Uh, Caden Rice can catch fire. Rice in Georgetown's 83-65 blowout of Siena at Capital One Arena on November 19th went 7 of 10 on threes. So he already has two games this season in which he has seven made threes in each game. Uh, also for the Hoyas in this loss to St. Joseph's, point guard Dante Harris, 0-3 on threes, but 8-15 on twos. He finished with 17 points, six assists versus two turnovers and three steals in 34 minutes as a starter. The seven-foot Nigerian, Timothy Igoefe, 14 rebounds, including five offensive boards, three blocks, and four points on two of two shooting in 27 minutes as a starter. And a rough game for the 6'5", five-star freshman, Aminu Muhammad. Uh, he, in 31 minutes as a starter, went 0 of 10 from the field. Uh, 0 one on threes and 0 of 9 on twos. He finished with just six points, did have nine rebounds, including three offensive boards. So the Hoyas got humbled in California. Next up for Georgetown, home to Longwood. Tuesday night at 7. All right. Well, that will do it for you and me just for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 197, will be a special Washington football team postgame show installment of the pod. In-depth reaction to and analysis of whatever happens in Washington's game against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday night. I will do my best to have Tuesday's show out by 5 a.m. on Tuesday. I can't promise anything because this game is probably not going to end until around midnight, and I'm not going to sacrifice the quality of the show just to get the show out by exactly 5 a.m. So if it's out at, you know, 5.15 a.m. or 5.30 a.m., don't fret. Oh, the episode is coming. I promise you that. We are planning on staying up all night on Monday night to deliver the goods here. Uh, I'll also have some thoughts for you on Monday night's Wizards game. Uh, the Wizards will be at the San Antonio Spurs Monday night at 8.30. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. It, it takes me back to a saying that I've said before, and I've told you guys this before, don't draw me a map unless you've been there. Unless you have been in my shoes, it's very difficult for people to tell you what it's like.